Hello, and welcome to the OpenG Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Chris Grimes, and I'm really excited on this episode to feature preeminent American composer John Harbison. In fact, we'll be presenting a concert of John Harbison's piano music January 25th at 7 p.m. at National Sawdust. That's at 80 North 6th Street in Brooklyn. The concert will feature seven fabulous pianists, and really get a load of this lineup. Gloria Chang, Judith Gordon, Gilbert Kalish, Robert Levin, Ryan McAvoy McCullough, Molly Markoski, and Ursula Oppens. Along with the composer himself, will be at the piano that evening, and will culminate in the world premiere of a performance of a work called Bag of Tales, written for those seven pianists, a movement for each. It really will be the only time in history, I think, that all seven pianists are going to be in one room to play this piece, and it's a very, very exciting and actual once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, so I hope you'll make an effort to be there. So, on to the interview. Uh, For those of you who might be new to the podcast, I do these in an almost gonzo style. I kind of set up the mic and then I go. So, in this case, I did this interview with John Harbison in his home in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And in this interview, besides us, you can hear stuff like street noise, his lovely dog Rudy making his presence felt a couple of times. And all in all, it really feels like you're there with us. And I love that about this episode. But before we get to that, here's a little bit of John's music, in fact, part of Bag of Tales, about a minute or so performed here by Ryan McAvoy McCullough, and then straight after that into the interview. I hope you enjoy hearing this as much as I did making it. Thanks for tuning in. following podcast is brought to you by Open G Records. Uh, I'm sitting here with John Harbison, uh, preeminent American composer. Uh, very happy and fortunate to be here in his home. Uh, we're going to be doing a concert of his music with seven fabulous and uh, extremely accomplished pianists at National Sawdust 
on January 25th at 7 o'clock. Uh, it's really not to be missed, uh, an evening of, of, of great music and friendship and uh, pure pianistic uh, virtuosity, uh, we, we should hope, so, hope for, and some poetry. So thank you, really, for uh, allowing me into your house and for taking the time with me today. Well, glad you made the trip up here. <laughs> I was really happy to do, safety. To do so. I, I have to say, I came into your contact, contact with your music as a freshman in college at Indiana, um, doing uh, a woodwind quintet. Mm -hmm. And then, mm -hmm. um, you know, we sort of went through some of the early ones. And then somebody said, what about this this piece I just heard about called, it's by this guy Harbison. And we were like, okay, let's take a look at it. And we were like, ooh, it's the first time in my life outside of a wind ensemble piece that I was met with something that I truly found challenging to the point where I couldn't really handle it as, a, as an 18-year-old. But it was so fascinating to all of us that we we tackled it and... That was my first contact with, with your music, and I, I, I found it fascinating immensely, and I've been uh, a fan for a really long time. That, really... Piece, that piece has uh, stuck around a long time, and uh, it seems like uh, you were 18 when you played it, and I'm now amazed sometimes to go to a high school mm -hmm. and hear a, a group of sophomores in high school. Who can actually play who it. Who can really play it, yeah. yeah. That's just in almost every field of music. Yeah, an astonishing fact of yeah life. It's hard to believe. Yeah, it's yeah. Uh, it really you know stuff that for me like the Nielsen Concerto used to be stuff you would only do in college and now freshmen are doing it in okay. high school and you know it's basically an audition piece. The big surprise for me is mostly some of it live, some of it on on uh, recording is high school big bands mm. who can play music and can can play arrangements from the sort of great era of the big band at a level that I would have thought was a crazy dream and really swing oh absolutely and play solo yeah it's yeah. it's all that's happened yeah the level really is, yeah i think actually technologically the level is you know obviously very different than when you grow up even when i grew oh, up i mean sure. my senior recital is on real real tape from indiana and sure. we could as i said early before we started the tape i could have this up on the internet this afternoon you know it's amazing technologically how things have moved along as well yeah it depends Indeed, with oral traditions, jazz, for instance, the availability of the past has really been just the last few years where everything can be found. Anything, yeah. at any time. Yeah, yeah it's, it's really amazing for a, a kid to be able to have all yeah. of this at their disposal to listen to, to look at, to look at the transcriptions, to see the notes. Yeah, it's, no kidding. The, yeah. the whole... The whole uh, sum total of Western culture is basically in, in the palm of your hand, literally, as we mm -hmm. walk around. So I always like to start out these things talking about people's early lives, because I, I just think that when you're a kid, it informs who you are. And I did some reading uh, on, on you, and you grew up in Orange, New Jersey, yeah? Uh, Princeton. Princeton. Yep. And your parents? They taught university. My father taught university. What did he teach? Uh, Renaissance and Reformation history. <laughs> and your mom? She was a church uh, magazine editor. And um, when you were uh, growing up in Princeton, did you meet a lot of Princetonians, uh, people who were eminent in their fields? Did you get to hang out as a child? with? I did, but I, of course, didn't know who they were. And, right. Um, yeah, the Institute for Advanced Study is in Princeton, and um, that was the place that most of the European emigre, uh, the Jewish professors mm -hmm. who were kicked out of their jobs, 
came and were given a studio to work and place to live. Um, Einstein lived a couple of doors away from me, actually. And my dad knew him because uh, he, he was a chamber music player. Right. And he was a fiddle player, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. terrible. <laughs> I heard him only once. But, but, um, but he, he knew me. I didn't know much about him. I mean, he's, when I would be walking around the neighborhood, he would be very polite and say hello. Mm -hmm. But uh, to me, he was just an eccentric guy with white hair when I was a young kid. Yeah. You know. So how old are you? Um, well, when we moved into his neighborhood, I was probably, I was actually not there, about 10. Mm -hmm. um, and I had a I had a Dixieland band that rehearsed right in that neighborhood, so he would, that's probably what he knew about me. We were loud you were, neighbors. And you were playing what in that band? Piano. In that band. Is that yeah. what you started playing as a child? Or? I would, as an improviser, I would say yes. I, my first studied instrument was uh, violin with the intention of being a violist. Oh, really? Why did you want to move to viola eventually? It interested me more. Why? Uh, the music I listened to, I was listening to detail of that sort, I guess. Like what? What music were you listening to? How old Mozart are you, when you do? Mozart quartets and uh, Bach. Mm -hmm. the, it's something in the inside of the textures was what I wanted to. Be My playing. wife is a violist, so yeah. I, yeah. I have uh, some affinity for it. Yeah, no, I always wanted the viola. And, and, and well, when did you start studying the violin with that uh, in your mind? Pretty young. Uh, so they start people younger than that sure. now. I think I started about six or seven years old. And was that your own idea? Was did you say I wanted? Yeah, to... I wasn't a good, a diligent practicer. Yeah, well, at um, six, it's hard. <laughs> but some people are. Yeah. Some have. They have the mentality. Sure. I didn't practice an instrument properly until high school when I took tuba and and we had a regular hour of practice every day and then I made tremendous progress. You played tuba. Yeah, just for I wanted to uh, to learn a brass. Instrument. I see. Uh, I see. But I, that was when I discovered that if there were a mandatory hour at which I would practice, I would actually so get really good on an instrument. But that was my highest level of virtuosity. I was on the tuba. tuba. Yeah. Nice. Um, but the piano I was mostly uh, uh, jazz. And in fact, my piano teacher threw me out. She assigned, I think, when I was a freshman in college, in high school play the Beethoven first sonata and I played it through and she said I don't want to listen to that anymore because I was swinging the whole piece yeah. you know, I couldn't play an even eighth note to save my life so he just said well we won't do that anymore bring me your pieces because she knew I was writing music right and she was a composer so she was really my composition teacher through high school um, and looked at all my pieces and uh, and then I I got pretty good I got I got pretty deeply into jazz. I, I think that maybe that was my sort of preoccupation through high school. Well, uh, let, let me back up. Just learning, the, you know, a lot about the music. About jazz in particular. Studying the people that I wanted to... And who were those people? Eventually, well, originally it was Dixieland players um, and really traditional New Orleans kind mm -hmm. of bands, and that's what we were playing. But then I got to know Oscar Peterson and um, Art Tatum and, you know, piano players with very high-profile mm -hmm. personality. Um, uh, Ellington's band, which I could get on the radio late at night. And um, what, what, what year is this, roughly? Through high school. Yeah, really. so yeah. we're talking like mid early 50s, mid-50s? Uh, mid-50s, yeah. When, so let's back up slightly to... Um, 
what did you your your family when you were growing up was musical? I mean, you... yes, um, my dad had been he had aspired to compose for a while. His family absolutely uh, discouraged that because of the money making potential there. No, they felt that music was avocational and. Uh, it's wonderful that he composed and played the piano and all that mm -hmm. as a young man, but that something more serious would be appropriate for him. So he did write. Uh, he was, when he was in college, he was the president of a thing at Princeton called the Triangle Club, where they put on these shows every year, and he wrote songs for that and and conducted it and so forth. So he, he had some musical skills. I see. And he played the piano pretty well, and most of what I learned about music early on was him playing. Is that your earliest musical memory, uh, or very specifically? Yeah, there were some Bach pieces, Bach pieces that he played. How that, old were you? That I asked him to transcribe for me. For um, you to play? Yeah, I was about five or six, and he did, and I, I, I found those transcriptions. So he was playing it from memory. He was playing it from um, the edition, and they were. A very specific bunch of chorales that I've come to know, actually, when I got into Bach as a performer, they're all in cantatas, but Bach made a collection for organ of six of those. And the popular version of those in those days, in the 40s, was by Buzzoni. Mm -hmm. I know those. Um, the the so-called Schubler chorales, mm -hmm. and my dad played those. Um, so I first heard them with the added bass line. Yeah, line yeah, yeah. And, but that's is that what he. Comte Hud in Highland part of that? Is that um, part of that set? Not in that set, but the, the one I was interested in was Vakadalf, mm -hmm. which is the mm -hmm. tenor chorale in mm -hmm. Cantata 140, um, which later on I conducted a lot and, and always remembered his exactly the way I heard it when he played it. So you, can, you have a, a, like almost fingerprint memory of being five, and not only your dad playing it, but the actual. The sound performance. of it. The sound of it, and then of course being very aware when he simplified it. He managed to just keep the really the only the principal voices, the chorale, the outline of the tune and the bass, and to transpose a lot of registers for me. But but that was a big experience that getting a sense of what uh, of getting my fingers on those notes. Right, uh, hearing what it sounded like, seeing what it looked yeah. like, and then putting those things together. Yeah, it was fun. really. And of course, I read music very little. Most of it, I had to mm -hmm. just kind of get it into my head and then play. Um, but the, he was, yeah, he was around town. Though he was a history professor, people thought of him as somebody who was musically pretty literate. Mm. And my mother played by ear. Did she play piano um, too? Or? Yeah, but she was. Her family was musical. They're all. Uh, my grandmother was a sort of a in, piano improviser, quite fluent. Where where would that, would they, that were up in, they were up in Maplewood, New Jersey, mm -hmm. and my uncle wrote uh, commercials. He wanted to write Broadway, but um, he wrote some very, very famous commercials. Jingles. Uh, jingles. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, so, and then my great uncle was uh, another songwriter. So this is heavy songwriting. Yeah. Uh, Does that come? Do you think that comes from anywhere in the past in your family, or is it? I don't know much about that beyond that. Uh, but I do know that songwriting, and of course I've always had an avocational songwriting thing that great respect for. For just uh, pure songwriting. 
Yeah, just in the pop. Yeah. It's incredibly, to me, a very difficult, a very rarely distributed skill. I love, like, really great pop music. I think that um, my background is more in rock and roll than, than classical. I came pretty late, as a lot of wind musicians do to it. So um, I love a, a, just a really well-put-together three-minute song. is like almost... It's very hard to do it. Yeah. <clears throat> the, uh, of course, as a jazz player... In the 50s, what I learned were the, what we now call the American Songbook, the, uh, what was the basic jazz repertoire, mm -hmm. Cole Porter, Berlin, Harold Arlen, all that, all those. I didn't know Gershwin who, in there? Gershwin. Yeah, yeah. I didn't know who wrote the songs at the time. I knew I could, when someone called them on a job, I would play them. Mm -hmm. But um, eventually I did, much thinking about the individual songwriters in that group. And eventually... For five years, a friend of mine had an idea. Uh, since I was sort of rounding out my teaching days, uh, they said they've never had a jazz choir here. They want a jazz on jazz vocal ensemble. Um, so why don't just do it? See what see if you like it. So I I did like it. I did it for five years, and I I did it on the basis that I'd be the pianist in the backup group because I thought that was the best way to coach. Mm -hmm. Didn't have to talk very much and just play and. But I made a lot of, of four voice arrangements of the, that sort of big that canon, um, and we did a, a half a year on each of those big songwriters, full year on Gershwin. Oh yeah, I um, deserved I think. Berlin, Porter, um, uh, Rogers. I think we did a year of Rogers. Um, Burton Lane is a particular favorite of mine. And, um, uh, Ruby Bloom. I wanted to do a few that hardly anybody knew much know. about. He wrote a lot of songs people know, but he knew he wrote a lot of great ones that nobody. We had to get them literally out of archives. Oh. Um, but Deep storage. That was really a great experience to engage with that. And Did that inform you as a composer, like like seeing all that small form kind of artistry? I think, it, no, it just really impressed on me how rare that talent is mm. to be able to make to you, to you to really be able over a career to write many songs mm -hmm. of that compact kind that really are high, highly, highly finished that people remember that have a certain spark that really really keeps keeps going um, is it, so uh, did you listen to other things besides American music or was it just mainly all of that being American music sort of well I felt like my job since I was not going to be there forever and this was for some of them was their whole undergraduate experience mm -hmm. was to just really make a very high level survey of what this music was I see. get them so they knew it well enough they could improvise on the tunes if they if they and and also just get a feeling for what um, that body of music, which really is in a fairly con confined, compact period. That is, it, that era does end, right? Uh, with some sort of you know arguable Freiklesser kind of after, mm -hmm. and then something else comes along, which is a period I don't know anything about. Uh, um, Which period is that? Very little. Well, uh, early rock. rock and roll? 70 years. Uh, uh, that period was about 25 years on the outside. Of early rock and roll? Or of, 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 the, of the theater songwriters. Yeah. 
And Sondheim is a kind of an after after image, but a very different thing. Yeah. Um, and then there's the rock era, which is 70 years about which I know little. Right. You never got into that at, at that age even? or I was a jazz musician who really was playing in clubs that were being taken over by rock. I see. And I was in a, a sort of rear, rear guard position. <laughs> um, so I never really paid a lot of attention. Yeah, sure. Um, eventually I had my friend Chris Rouse make a couple of huge collections for me. I'd say, I better, I want to write an article about this music. And he did. And I found lots of things to listen to. Yeah. But it didn't engage me in terms of wanting to get a real grip. I see. Of the, the artistry of, of, yeah. of the small form. And I found I was attracted to things that probably were not mainstream. Uh, there was a brief period of the sort of experimental rockers in the 70s mm -hmm. that Gentle Giant, people like that. I've mm -hmm. got interested in those guys, but really from a different angle. That's a different compositional yeah. angle of altogether all from it's, straight pop. It's not really rock. Right. mainstream rock right and so I, I guess I missed in a way and since that still is going its slice of history is so vast yeah. compared to jazz which really as a central art form was over in 30 years right people still you know slaving away well it's a, it's a historical form now yeah right um, a very great one I think but it, it it exists in an archive in a way See, I grew up with Elvis Presley, and to me, jazz is very difficult to yeah, wrap my brain around. Yeah, it's around. completely different it's a set of assumptions. Yeah, I mean, uh, al almost, you know, a, a composer that, that, that I worked with a lot at my school in East Carolina <clears> named Ed Jacobs grew up listening to jazz almost exclusively and was like, you know, like you, fascinated with, with the technique and the composition, and, and, and we would try to get together and get it, and I would be like, I'm... I almost always just gravitate towards the pure musicianship of, of mm -hmm. the playing because it's phenomenal. I just those guys get around their instruments and know their instruments and better. Now, than and nowadays, anyone. of course, they're like uh, they're like sta speed stallions. I mean, it's, the yeah. actual technical level of jazz now is, is like resources. Unbelievable. As you say, it's unbelievable. Something else is an issue. Another issue, of course, about what is really alive about the the essence of the music, and that's that's a bigger problem. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, for me, coming out of Monk, who for, for instance was my idol, absolute musical idol, Why? perhaps par, is in high school. What, was, what about? It, it, to me, it was the most original, uh, totally um, uh, sort of really volcanic, specific talent in, in all of music. And I would have... I would even have included others of my great heroes like Stravinsky in that. I mean, Monk to me was someone who'd never played a note that wasn't Monk hmm. or a chord that wasn't his and was somehow just jazz's probably greatest claim on producing a world genius composer. of music. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, Composer or a player. Right, okay. Um, and to, to go from him to Elvis was a huge yeah. leap. The Elvis phenomenon interested me much more sociologically, and in the, even in as it was happening, and really also because the having experienced for a while jazz when it was at the end of its public phase, you know it occupied that center. Everybody hears it, 
everybody's listening to it through the 20s and 30s into the 40s during the Second World War where jazz jazz and a sort of soft pop version of jazz were still and on through Sinatra who's the last kind of flair of, mm-hmm. of a jazz singer with a pop, public following the change was radical yeah when Bill Haley and the you know was sure. not a great group but clearly captured something what it was was the country blues impulse mm-hmm. kind of moving into the mainstream and, and in fact sort of simplifying the the basic groove to the point that it could reach a was beginning to reach a huge audience and I think out of that came a, such a change uh, as popular music has, has never probably has never really rebooted since then no for sure it's interesting uh, just thinking about it now how both of those both jazz and early rock and roll both stem from the black experience in, in America I mean we can indeed <clears throat> call country and western and, and, and all that but a lot of it was also the backbeat from you know all the way down that's from totally the, that's totally at the, at the source of it yeah and for when I was a kid in Princeton I I knew it was hopeless but I wanted to be black right if I if somebody heard my audition recording which they did actually when I went into a contest and sort of as a senior in college and thought I was black as a jazz player, yeah, that was I thought, jeez, an honor. Yeah, yeah. But this was also showed how, in a way, quixotic the whole. I mean, the Ken Burns treatment of of jazz on his uh-huh. film, which is like another great Ken Burns film, sure. which a lot of mainstream jazzers don't like because they say the white musicians got uh, very little attention. Well, wait a minute, you know they're not. High, they're a very, very low percentage of important jazz activity. White people. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it just look. If you're going to tell the history, let's be real. There it is. Yeah. I know. Um, Sorry, please. And for me, I'm actually going in, going into concert music. What I noticed right away was the people who came out of jazz were a different, had different set of ears, and were different interests in different things than the ones who came from rock. What sort of different things do you think? Like, just anything specific, just style of composition, like a, the know. function of harmony, mm-hmm. the 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 attitude to contrast, the attitude to actual sheer volume of sound. Mm-hmm. Um, there were the changes were very large. Mm-hmm. I mean, my friend Chris Rouse, who's a former rock drummer, uh, hears his concert music. Through the filter of a of a rock pass, mm-hmm. that um, makes some sense. There's a lot of heft in, in a lot yeah, of his orchestration. Right. Yeah, yeah. And even his his in some ways his most eloquent kind of less active music is harmonically extremely straightforward. Hmm. Um, but but I think that I think that was a big sea change in terms of how people's ears. Got into music, when and the and the jazz thing is now. We rarefied. just yeah. I, I haven't run into a young composer out out of jazz in a long time. A lot of people have to you know simply as a as a matter of being a twenty first century performer, kind of have to be able to do a lot of different things. So a lot of guys that I know in the city who are doing a lot of jazz are still doing a lot of traditional classical playing as well when they mm-hmm. need to just. 
it's hard to find somebody who strictly plays one end of the instrument who plays jazz. I mean, classical guys don't switch over a whole lot, but the jazz guys do. Yes, and actually somebody who plays a lot of different kinds of, does a lot of different kinds of work, say studio work, I'm always amazed how many things people can play. Those guys, to, to be able to read and pretty that, convincingly, that well and then go at it, it's yeah, insane. It's, it's, it's so, I, think, I think that multiple skill thing is, is a, is a is one of the most interesting things about the present day music world that people do feel that these idioms are out there and that they almost have to have some feel for it. I'm finding that with the kids that play in say the MIT big band you throw almost anything at them, you know. Some kind of a Latin thing or mm -hmm. uh some sort of a absolute sort of uh uh heavy metal kind of uh Almost any rhythmic assumption, they seem to be able to figure out how to do it. It's a similar thing on, on people who do strictly classical now, too, because, you know, 20 years ago, there were people who played strictly, mostly Brahms, Mozart, traditional classical, would not cross over to do a whole lot of new stuff, whereas now everybody has to be not only passingly familiar, but well familiar with going from Brahms to Boulez, you know, just uh, as a matter of being a working musician, a portfolio player, you have to be able to do that. It's the biggest change over the last 20 years, I think, because the the specialist player is almost gone. Yeah. And orchestras have changed their attitudes, too. We used to go into orchestras in, into a really hostile environment. Sure. Uh, because they were so unused to right. uh, playing anything but what they were used to playing. And that doesn't really happen now because they're just not going to be in that kind of position unless they're pretty much ready for... The world has definitely changed underneath orchestra's feet, and some of them mm -hmm. have pivoted really well. Um, actually, in St. Louis, this this past season opener was a, in the concerto spot. They did the Boulez... Um, uh, Dialogue de la My I produced that with my my mm -hmm. friend who played clarinet, and so the fact that a, you know a major American orchestra is going to put that on the season opener in the concerto spot is was mind blowing to I us. Think, so I think most before. major orchestras are absolutely capable of of, and in Europe, in a way, even more so. Yeah. Um, that's a huge change, and the, and with it has gone the hostility for the most part. Of, of the live composer. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, there used to be almost like a hazing atmosphere, and many of us of a certain generation... Without naming any orchestras, mm -hmm. what was the worst? Like, did you, did you have like a really gnarly experience? Uh, yeah, a couple. New Yorkville. <laughs> not, not, Without naming? Not for a long time. Yeah, yeah. Not for long, not since long. Sure. But d back then, yeah. Um, sorry to say, Boston was no picnic. Really? Yeah. Um, that was, that was rock rocky. In some ways, it was the biggest of the big that were the hardest places mm -hmm. to go. Chicago, um, Chicago. A lot of people really felt they were just too important to be playing new pieces. You know. um, but that's really that's so rare to find. Yeah, I don't even think that attitude exists yeah. that much anymore. Except just maybe about old, gone. Old super old guard players. Yeah, it's just something. about gone, and and that was really. Uh, um, that was one of those things that you almost had to prepare yourself mentally for and nowadays really you don't you just think well they'll they'll be okay we'll play it. and 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 there's even a kind of a uh, 
pride in how well they absorb. That's uh, really cool, yeah. actually, because yeah. I mean, hearing something new done poorly is like like why even yeah. make it happen? But sure, the orchestra biggest problem for the orchestra still is that they don't. They need more rehearsal. If they play something a little bit more, mm -hmm. even a week ahead, uh, I finally got a contract stipulation for quite a few years that was enforceable, where uh, the orchestra agreed to start the piece a week early, and that seemed to make a giant absorption difference. Just for them to even, touch it and, and e get the sound. In even there. if it wasn't many minutes, uh -huh. um, and it was only only uh, challenged once. Um, out of about maybe ten occasions, successfully or uh, you, it depends how you look at it. <laughs> Lauren Mazel uh, was told that this was the deal, yeah, and he said no. Uh, that's an insult to the New York Philharmonic. I will not allow it. Um, he said they. He said tell the composer, um, either do it our way or or take it off the program. And what happened? That was so. I said, "Okay, we'll, <laughs> yeah, right. we'll play it." Yeah. And then, actually, the end of the story was 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 kind of a wonderful. They got it was a hard program. Uh, they they did the the my Milos songs with Don Upshaw, and they did Bartok concerto for uh, no, not concerto Bartok strings percussion and cellist, oh, a much yeah. harder piece right. than people expect. Yeah. And of all things, very strangely, for the first time attributing it not to Bernstein but to the arrangers they did the Bernstein West Side dances hmm. um, the, a big contractual thing had been settled and the two guys who had actually scored that piece were now to be on the on the program I see and they so they're trying to do a good job they're, they're reasonably hard they got too close to the end of that final rehearsal and Bob Spano went called in somebody from management said we're going overtime and they went overtime and they still weren't in good shape on the program and they did another overtime so double overtime mm -hmm. so that early thing in the previous week would have been absolutely to their advantage right. it probably would have saved them a couple hundred thousand bucks <laughs> <laughs> Among other things, you were both artistically and financially vindicated in this situation, <laughs> and I was kind of enjoying the, watch, the watching this unfold. Quietly, yeah, yeah right. Mm, yeah, yes, that's interesting how that happened. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder whether ever, anybody ever had the nerve to tell Lauren about it. Uh, that how much it cost, or yeah. <laughs> I'd love yeah. to be a fly on the wall yeah. of that yeah. conversation. But anyway, I, I think that's that that business of modern orchestras welcoming and also sort of being proud of it is one of the biggest happy changes that we've run into. I mean, they, mm -hmm. they really, um, and in many cases, there's quite a few people preparing their parts. Oh which, yeah, which used to be a pride thing, you know. Don't don't ever love, see the part, leave the stand, but. Oh, yeah. I don't know, man. That that attitude is—I haven't seen that in an orchestra in a long time. No, I parts think are so hard. It's just—I think that's fading away. You know, and the fact is that you know, composers who are writing things now, there, there are technical challenges that don't exist in Brahms and and uh, and true. Beethoven and Mozart that are just flat out. What the public still doesn't know and probably can't know unless it, it, it because it doesn't happen directly to them, but. How much better, though, an orchestra plays 
a piece, if it comes back to a piece, the way they come back to the Brahms. Mm -hmm. It's about how much better the classics are played than the newer piece. Right. And that is shockingly large increment. Mm -hmm. And that's not no one's fault, it's just a fact of life. But if if a piece comes back uh, in the old way that apparently Kusevitsky always uh, always did, because he noticed this, um, sec second season, you know, or let's try it th three years in a row. Mm -hmm. It's like a different piece. It's, it moves so much forward, you begin to realize really, I realized kind of for the first time how how well a Beethoven symphony is played, you know, uh, well, by a great orchestra. Because yeah. they, they are... done it a thousand times. Yeah, they are really not, the, certain problems they're not worrying about anymore. Yeah. No, I mean, um, if you're in, in the BSO and you're doing Beethoven 7, you bop, bust out in a rehearsal and you're you're pretty much ready to go. I mean, you could get a great performance if you put three rehearsals down, but you still get a good it's performance. A, absolutely, and I it hit me once going to an MIT symphony rehearsal of Brahms uh, first, and it was a sort of a mid-rehearsal, but everything sounded wrong. It was all out of balance. It, it clearly... The engineering of that piece, by modern standards, where composers go to great trouble to, they know their rehearsal time is short, and mm -hmm. they want to make sure that they do the sort of Mahleristic thing of trying to really balance the score in the markings. Brahms wasn't bothering with that mm -hmm. clearly in that in his music. Right. He expected rehearsal, and Wagner took it so far that he hardly puts a mark in and thinks you better rehearse, you know, for a year. Um, <laughs> And I think I've always thought he sort of did that to make sure people really rehearsed. But that business of we think that these pieces are fitted for public consumption by the composer, well, much less than a modern score would be because those guys that thought, well, things are going to get worked out. And plus the players yeah. of that time would have sort of in shorthand known... In something. shorthand known a lot about it. Yeah. But also it took them time probably to get... The way we hear Brahms first sorted out well, mm -hmm. I think uh, we, if a bunch of kids are playing it have never heard a recording, it's not going to sound like that. Brahms is hard. Yeah, it's Brahms just not going to sound like that. Yeah. Um, that to me was interesting because it's, it's like we have we now have reacted to the union and the the very finite rehearsal time stuff, and part of what we learn as a craft is to set it up so it will be pretty presentable fairly fast because mm -hmm. a lot of questions get answered it's part in, of your game in the detail yeah workable yeah in the, in the, in the detail yeah i don't ever agree much with the idea though that uh, which is certainly part of what is being a composer nowadays of learning to write the short piece that sounds great on one read because um, if you write that defensively um yeah. there's a lot of censoring of what you might do. Uh, I always think, you know, you write the piece you want to write and make it as clear as you can, but in no way are you trying to solve all the problems. Right. You right leave away. that to me. You, you, can't, you can't do yeah. it. Yeah. And let the players yeah. figure it out. Yeah. I always find that it's the best marriage is when the composer is thinking, obviously, of the player, and then the player is really looking at the music like, what is what is this guy trying to trying to tell me? You know, and so that that marriage in the middle, that where where you're trying to tell me and I'm trying to tell you, is really where for a performer, 
the be the best of it. Well, I think the other thing the composer is responsible for is make the make the part interesting, right? Uh, and that's something the old composers always thought about, I'm sure, uh, to some degree. And it's it's less thought about than it might be now because of the computer part. Right. That's you know you can hear it being executed. Because when you part, copied your own part, your knowledge of the life trip through uh, through the piece of the individual player was much higher. Mm. That's interesting. I'd never uh, thought about just from the pure act of being your copyist. Or oh yeah, I mean, I, for the first fifteen years of my life as a composer, I copied all my parts. And That's something kids are never going to understand. Never. The, the, the <laughs> never. slog of trying to write. It was up. incredibly valuable. Uh, it was like a whole composition lesson hmm. to to yourself, because reading you, through your own. Notes. Well, and living like the English horn player through an orchestra piece. You know? I see. It's, there's got to be some moments where the English horn, the need of the for the English horn, is made clear. I don't know that that you know a lot of composers necessarily are thinking. I mean, maybe a lot of them are, but it, I mean, playing parts, it's fifty-fifty because sometimes it doesn't appear that the composer cares very much about your experience as a player. But I think there's very few pieces by the old guys that that didn't occur. Because either they or the copyist or their need to proofread absolutely every mm -hmm. note of it because there wasn't an automatic phase. Right. I think that that process was extremely organic. Um, but I think that's something that the composers now need to be urged to think about because you, you've got to get in there and live it for, in some, in some way, every player. Um, uh, well, and that's, that. that's part of the interesting thing about, you know, about the whole task. Um, but that is a big, all of that, the playback is a fascinating new thing. Being able to say, first time I was in a composition, teaching a composition class, I think it was at CalArts, guy said, would you like to hear it? I said, what do you mean? We're sitting here. Right. He says, oh, I'll just play it back. I said, you can do that? Sure, you can do that. This was quite a long time ago. Um, it must have been 1986. So he played the thing, and I was quite amazed that, you know, this is like a sketch. Right. level and I remember thinking this was the interesting part I said how come you write the string quartet but you your cello is down an octave from where you notated it I said oh it is I said yeah said, oh yeah I pushed the wrong thing so next day next time a week later he came in with the same piece played it back to me so the title page has changed this two violins viola and contrabass and what hit me about that was, wow, the playback came so soon that that was the sound of the piece. Mm -hmm. You know, that gripped his ear so much that, and I said, I'd made a kind of, I said, said kind of joke to him, said, well, you've reduced the performance possibilities for this piece quite a lot here because True. that combo is pretty rare, except back in the days of the Lendler, and, you know. And, <laughs> the, the country, the country mountain Super band, you know, <laughs> bass player. <laughs> but, but um, you know that that's that's a huge interchange, interaction, change from the composer burning away trying to figure out how something sounds. I do find, yeah. as a performer, when a composer, especially young ones now who grew up using the computer, that's almost a crutch in a way for performers. I. I look at some music and I go, that's 
what in the world were you thinking? And he's like, well, it sounded good over here. And I'm like, yeah. well, take it down 20 clicks and maybe we can have a conversation. Exactly. The rhythmic, uh, the rhythmic uh, assumptions get, get skewed, too, because the thing plays back. Perfect sevens and fives. Yes, and, and it, at, at, it sometimes at speeds that sound perfectly clear. Yeah. And then suddenly the in in the instrument none of that can really happen. No. Yeah. But the the, the synthesis of the sound has become so advanced that it sounds right. It sounds like the instrument can do it. It's not right. fake sound. The anymore. really scary thing that's happened is that the it, the MIDI the MIDI instruments have gotten so much better. Yes. That's terrifying. I Some, I've sometimes been auditioning like for Tanglewood and in comes we you always say no MIDIs, but sometimes it comes like an orchestra piece. Doesn't say anything about it, and it's like twenty measures before I think I'm not hearing an orchestra. Yeah, wow, it's weird. I, you know, I grew up in, in, as video games came out, so I, st I still have a video game system, and a lot of them they used to have these big orchestral scores that actually came with them, and they still do. But now it's not an orchestra. It used to act. You could hear mm. the oboist, you could hear mm. this, that, and the other, and now it's just it's beautiful, but it's this kind of polished, straight. I've got to, I've got to hand it to the. These are very big technical problems to try to get an oboe to sound like an oboe. Yeah. You know? But they have they have perfected an awful lot of that. It's, it's pretty amazing. Much more than the big era when the studios were being chintzy about hiring orchestras and they were producing a lot of films with these fake orchestras, and apparently even producers and directors uh, were unhappy with the sounds. Yeah. yeah. Nowadays, I wonder they almost could make the public believe it they're hearing an orchestra yeah it's amazing it, the technological part of it is, is amazing but how you use it is I, I I don't think we've even scratched the surface of knowing what to do with it or, or what what the performers end is going to end up being I just found my old uh, I got when I was in LA with uh, back in the 80s I I bought one of these Kurz file the earliest model electric pianos mm -hmm. which was not advanced enough to sound like anything but an electric piano. Right. It had its own I like sonic sound. charm. Yeah, no, I actually like <laughs> Almost like every sound, sound on it was could only be there. You yeah. know, you uh, and that that vintage of electric piano is now just sort of a Smithsonian item. I mean it shows up in, in yeah. rock tunes from time yeah, to time. Right. Do you like think a, old old rock tunes? Yeah. 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 That's a crunch, the crunchy low end is so oh amazing. Oh my gosh, it's certain kinds of ways that the things are not yeah. not resonating with each other. It's great. Uh, yeah. Let me back up just one second because I'm interested in knowing if you ever thought about doing anything else with yourself besides being a musician or a composer. It sounds like you were like, you know, sort of in it to win it from the age of six. Really, so. pretty much, yeah. I used to take those um, vocational tests I don't know where they still do that with kids in high school yeah, I think so. and I was always sort of hoping to be uh, clued in on something else I might want to do <laughs> um, but it never came up any other uh, direction and um, I know my parents my my parents because they were the most sort of university people particularly my dad mm -hmm. uh, they they in some ways, realistically, couldn't see much of a way for a composer to live than to, to have to be in a university. Um, That's probably true for a, a long time. I'm yeah. sure. That, I'm sure that you could count on the fingers of a hand or two 
people who were doing it people outside. People were doing it outside. Yeah. Extremely few. Yeah, it's still that's still the best and, gig you can get. If and you're a composer. and pretty much the the only other resource has been film and, and TV. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, that's another skill, a very serious one. Actually, I vocationally composition has changed a lot in that I've noticed that younger composers regard that option as something they need need and want to learn about and don't back away from in any way the way uh, composers who were hell-bent on trying to follow Stravinsky and Schoenberg and Copeland right down the concert line. And of course Copeland blazed that trail in a way because he uh, was a self-supporting composer in an era when virtually no one else was. Mm-hmm. Um, but I didn't think I didn't have any any other real options. Um, and for a while, the big decision for me was about jazz or concert. I see. Um, and jazz, I was discouraged by the the shrinking. Concert field is small enough, but jazz was definitely in in a attrition phase. Uh, a somewhat rebirth of jazz lately has been one of the biggest surprises I've mm-hmm. seen. I mean, there's more people. Going into jazz and trying to find some way to. I think there's an audience for it too because they're. With everything in in your life being processed and delivered to you in a package to sell Mm -hmm. things to you, something that's real, that's actually like a craftsperson making something happen in real time, is interesting these days. Exactly right. This is, I think, the big distinction there. Um, Jazz is always a partly improvised form, so that unlike the major part of rock history where the idea of the performance was to perform something that sounded as close to the recording, uh, or very recognizably close to the recording, jazz the idea has always been to come out and do a different version. And I think that now that performers have to perform again Mm -hmm. because of the internet, um, jazz is taking, getting a little bit of a uh, jolt, positive jolt from yeah, that. And some some good young instrumentalists who might not quite be jazz, but are are, are in that general direction. There's a resurgence in good orchestral or instrumental pop oh, yeah. and 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 yeah. pop jazzy kind of playing. Yeah, we just had a big go round with this guy, um, uh, Jacob uh, Collier, British. Multi-instrument. He's a one-man band guy. Mm. He's a jazz, a jazz musician, which is surprising. And he has, due to the internet, where you can find, you know, a, you, you can draw a constituency yes. in a way that you never could before. That's right. Uh, he doesn't have big audiences by the big rock standard at all. You can't. But say in a town like like Boston with a big jazz school like Berkeley. Um, we did a concert of his his first attempt to try to become a performer because his medium has been films mm-hmm. on the internet. So how does a one-man band guy get out in front of an audience? But he, he did a thing with our groups at MIT, and the hall was packed with yeah. Berkeley kids who find out the way that everybody finds out now is they go on... Somebody they see something on the web and somebody sends it to them and so forth. It's high, and, and so yeah, jazz gets an avenue through that. High tech word of mouth. Yeah, yeah, and this for certain kinds of odd forms which are not mainstream anymore is an interesting. Uh, I actually find that 
I'm getting better audience uh, audiences by that than I do by traditional media at all. I had a concert that had a lot of a lot of backing from the Times and from the New Yorker and from Time Out New York and it just had a terrible showing and then you know did another one with the, the complete idea to not do any of that and to do it all by word of mouth and had a, a great showing. I think classical is, is ex moving exactly in that way that yeah, you well, say. Yeah, it has to. Um, even our very rather specialized uh, Bach Cantata series at Emmanuel Church which has been going on for 40 years and um, does some concerts now the people who are managing that say that it's the bloggers and the web yep. is the is how they spend their day, yep. um, and the print guys who are really somewhat marginalized because first of all they they look at the general sociology of it pretty much the way they did ten years ago, mm -hmm. and it's changed that much. Yeah, and it's, it's um, any. Yeah. You, well, having worked with college students a lot, you know this, that like somebody under under 40 these days, they aren't going to look at traditional media. They're not going to look at the times. They're not going to look at any of that. They're going to find it all on their phone or on their laptop or their iPad or whatever. And, and certain fields are much more studyable than they were. I, I found that if I said to my kids, you know, first of all, learn the song I've assigned to you, learn to sing it. But then if you want to find out who's done it, you can obviously look it up quickly and go listen to some great performances. And I told them about usually a couple. But you, at this point, that's so accessible. It's mm -hmm. like you used to say, go hear even Billie Holiday sing the song. And it was not that simple. You have to go to the listening lab and yeah, get exactly. the record out. Get, yeah, yeah, yeah. Go find the record. Mm -hmm. you know. mm -hmm. now, YouTube. Now, in terms of access to the, the tradition or the heritage of an art like that that goes back now, way over a century, it's there. Um, and I think we have no idea what to do with that yet. It's overwhelming. Yeah. And fortunately, kids in college specialize pretty instinctively. That is to say, they, they see that there's something they really want to learn. Yeah, and, they consume, and, they're, and they're willing to just, mm -hmm. you know... They're grab, very grab good on. targeted yeah. consumers of what right. they want to consume. And the rest they're going to leave to whatever. But that's, that's actually very helpful. Let me take a quick sidebar. Um, we, we spoke briefly about black and white experiences in jazz, and Molly Morkowski, who helped me, really was the person who, who put this con concert together that we're going to do in a, in a few weeks here, um, told me that you spent time in the civil rights struggle in the 60s in the South. Um, uh, yeah, we did. Being from, from Virginia and being from two old South families. I would love to hear a little bit about that experience if you want to talk about it. Well, uh, I came I came from a background, as to Rosie did, sort of radical political thinking. My, my mother was one of the, um, I guess she was the chairperson, there's actually a film about it, of what's called the Princeton Plan. It's the first New Jersey town to integrate its public school system. And uh, I was one of the so-called guinea pig kids in third grade who was put in the integrated classes because we supposedly had been getting the kind of home uh, background that would make make us excited about this new experience, which was, Princeton was a segregated town. Mm. You had a black section, you had a white section, and you didn't go one to the other. So just to set it up, you were born in 38, so we're talking yeah. about the 40s. 40s. Yeah, yeah. 40s. Um, pre Jackie Robinson, sort mm -hmm. of no, 
Uh, and uh, so that experience was, to me, very interesting. And some of my teachers were among the best teachers I had, the black teachers. And they sort of pre-screened a lot of the kids who were going to be studying with the black teachers because it was a, a southern atmosphere. Mm. Princeton University remained, I would say, very much a southern atmosphere for a long really? time. Yeah. I would never imagine um, that. And uh, in so uh, then when it came to the the 64 when they were mobilizing to go down we found out that there was a group here in town um, led by John Mudd who uh, remained actually in Jackson for a number of years later um, to go down and replace the uh, teaching faculty at Tougaloo College for the summer. Um, this is Jackson, Mississippi? Yeah. So a whole lot of people were were going from this region, um, but this was actually the largest group from from here. Uh, and were you married yet? Was this yeah, uh, were we? You were together at least. Good question. Rosie, nineteen sixty four. Yeah, right. <laughs> and anyway, we, we went. We went. My sister also went. Um, and uh, the idea was, we were we had two functions. We were going to teach the classes, so that the, it, this is a very important uh, institution in that city. It was uh, a black college with some white faculty and very much at the f outer fringe of the integration movement in Jackson. Um, so we, were, we would replace all of them and we were also going to be uh, as visible and active in the community as we could be in our spare time, uh, just as a big presence. Uh, just in the being around, yeah. going to stores, Everywhere. just showing yeah. up. Um, and all both those things led to some very interesting experiences. Um, on the way down, of course, the, the uh, Goodman, Swerner, and Cheney were killed um, while we were still en route. Um, and uh, so we knew it was a pretty serious scene, but we knew that already, I guess. Um, and while we, uh, and this, the college was the headquarters for the movement. Uh, so Dr. King and Jackson, all those people were were coming in and out for their meetings and so forth. A lot of uh, police presence, FBI. Often we would come into uh, college from outside carrying our instruments, and the FBI would make us open our cases and stuff. So um, what we did was we taught our classes. We taught them, I think, naively, but perhaps somewhat respectfully pretty much the content we would have taught any group of students. Just by the book, straight up. Just what we had ready to go. Yeah. Stanley Cavell, the philosopher from Harvard, was down there. He was teaching on, us, on Emerson. And, and historian Tom Gleason was teaching Russian history with them. And so it was a pretty, just what, what we would have done if we had been teaching summer school here. In any other, um, uh, in any other situation, just a totally normal... I don't think we would have would have had an idea how to do it any other way. Mm -hmm. We had a bunch of concerts, some of which we've been preparing here. We we played played the Brahms A minor A major piano quartet. <coughs> we played Schoenberg Fantasy, um, Schumann Carnival. Played a bunch of recent things. Kids loved it. I mean, they came to hear whatever we were going to play. Mm -hmm. That was for sure. Uh, they had a good music program. That could have been one of the strongest things at the school when we arrived. And then we had a lot of experiences, just you know, getting chased and chased like, yeah. well, like what? I mean, I don't. Think it, <laughs> it sounds like a, yeah. like an interesting. If you're story. driving in the country and to get somebody's following you, and you, you know, 
because then they, they come and they try to push you off. And then, well, the worst was actually we took, we went into a music store uh, in Jackson. Um, quite sh not quite sure what we were trying to buy, but we went we made a big mistake, which is a fundamental mistake, which is Walter Turnbull, who was one of our students, uh, rode in the front seat. And by the time we came out of the store, there were a bunch of guys with tire irons and stuff. Because a black kid was in the yeah, front seat of the yeah. car. Um, so we got in the car. Uh, somehow we got in the car, and we tried, started driving about it a lot. And these guys were waiting to beat the crap out of us. That's very scary. And we couldn't remember the, the street out of the parking lot was one way. If we'd gone the wrong way, we would have been arrested and put in jail, probably. Um, so, but we were trying to go pretty quick because these guys were beating on the car. Um, fortunately, we turned the right way. Yeah. Um, but later we found out that that is that was like a, you know, fuck you to the populist. To, to right, have right in there with a black guy in the front seat. Um, so there were there were there was a lot of hazards to it. There was a lot of interesting kids that we worked with. And we, we were surprised, this was very naive, that they were much more conservative than we were. The black kids? The students, yeah. They were, from the, say, the upper levels of black society, um, to even be in that college, you know, that mm -hmm. was really very well dressed. Their ambitions was to have a nice family and, you know, do a little better than their parents. And so we came down with a typical northern radical idea that you know, society will be changed and these will be our co-fighters and the barricades. That wasn't at all the dynamic. Um, and uh, of course it, it's perfectly predictable, but had we, yeah. really, we didn't really know much about it. I taught harmony to a class, which was a great experience and very interesting because uh, they were all kids who could play some a certain amount of keyboard and so forth, but teaching them the principles of refined Western voice leading and stuff, they didn't hear that. I see. They, they just didn't hear, they didn't hear it. Um, what they heard was blues progression. Sure. Parallel, four to five, that kind of thing. That was interesting to me because what I learned from getting a whole class like that was this was all acquired grammars. You know, I mean, the way Bach would would move the voices here is not the way that uh, a blues band would play it. Right. And I, I and sort that's of... that's what your, I, your ear says. That's yeah, I sort of knew that, but I didn't realize that you could condition... You condition a whole societal group to select one of these methods. So that was very interesting, because the kids were, you know, I play... So now here's how we're going to do it with this. No, no. I say, well, show me what you want. You know. Okay. okay. Yeah. And everybody agreed. You know, in the class. Yeah. So I thought, well, okay, let's te we'll teach it as two languages. Interesting. That's what I did. We'll just talk and in the so and so. This will. This is what we do. And that was helpful, I think. Um, the other thing I remember that about that was we were teaching at seven a.m. because it, it was so hot. Mm -hmm. Um, there was no air conditioning, and uh, it really you had to do everything around the climate. I can imagine if you, particularly, if you're not used to it, which we weren't. Right. Um, even the sometimes the concerts were really pretty rough. But um, 
But I, I, looking back on it, what I feel is oddest about it is that we, we never consulted that faculty or each other or anything about content. We just went and did, did it. what we kind of had ready. Mm-hmm. Um, and in a way, I don't question the decision. I think maybe we gave them the best of what we we knew. I think you know? the naivety yeah. of that is kind of pure, right? It yeah. It's like, I'm it seemed do what peculiar. I would do for any other person, yeah. and this is how it's going to go. But it seems like we missed the meeting. You know, there was, <laughs> usually there would, be, <laughs> there would be a discussion. <laughs> Here's the deal, and yeah. what are we going to do? You know, How was that um, experience, do you think, sort of informed you since then? Did, it, did that radically change your outlook on... American culture, or yeah, you know, I tell you how what, deep the divisions really are, or what what I perceived. First of all, I, I hadn't really realized. I wrote. A, I've been writing a little book of sort of things connected to Bach. There was some, we performed a lot of Bach with these kids down there. Um, we, I hadn't really realized what an invasion felt like from the other side. In other words, these, a lot of the citizens down there just felt like we were just simply like almost like a military incursion against them. And they had lived their lives a certain way and what the hell did we think we were doing? You know? But that was a lot of the source of the tension. And I understood it a lot better later on. I also felt that a great sense of how that region could change in a way that the Boston later on couldn't mm. um, because that black and white people had much more contact with each other mm-hmm. at some level in that society than Roxbury to Boston. Mm-hmm. So when things in the South, particularly cities like Atlanta, became really genuinely, you'd call it integrated, mm-hmm in a way that northern cities never did, I had much more understanding of why that could happen. Why I could go down to Atlanta Symphony and half the board is black mm-hmm. guys. And it just That's like, not in your wildest dreams is the Boston Symphony going to look like the Atlanta Symphony yeah. um, in terms of the cultural integration of the whole city. And that was part of what could be certainly learned from from what we did, because we we noticed that. We noticed that the capacity to to alter the society was extremely present. That's interesting. And of course, a lot happened in Mississippi very quick compared to where they were. Well, yeah. A lot of very bad stuff happened too, but I mean, to get on the road to get there there was much more to be seen about change of attitude there than in in New England. And pro- in your mind, mainly from just the proximity of living across the street or, or like oh, in, the, in a bunch of neighborhoods. A or huge what amount of... You, you, you were not surprised to see a black person right. if you're a white guy right, right. and vice versa. Right. And that was like a totally... That was even just for us quite a noticeable thing. Hmm. Um so that was, yeah, it was a very valuable thing. And then later on I was asked occasionally to write something relative to this, and I didn't want to do it because um, it seemed like a too... I, I needed something much more oblique. I d- the closest I came was a piece called Between Two Worlds, which is a 
about both um, Vietnam and, and the civil rights era, and, um, but not not with no explicit reference to the Mississippi thing. They wanted me to. They sent me the diaries of Schwerner. I said no, thank you. It's a little bit blunt, yeah. right? It's yeah. hard to actually make that. Yeah. No, it didn't work. Mean yeah. something, yeah. right? Um, but but it certainly was a yeah. We're, everyone who went, a lot of people who were in this group have written actual memoirs, were, which go into it pretty soon. Stanley Cavell's book uh, um, his autobiography has an interesting chapter about the two little thing. You know, having uh, as I say, grown up in the South, it's something I'm very interested in in terms of just. I have stories about my grandmother that would really would make your hair curl, you know, and just like the things that she would say, and yeah, well, without thinking, without even yeah. without even being a pejorative necessarily, you mm-hmm. know, or an, a, a, a purposeful pejorative. It's just I'm I'm very fascinated with with race, and uh, it seems like a really fascinating time. Uh, well, there in are two culture. two cultural elements which uh, which had big effect on the South: what, sports and, and music. Hmm. And particularly collegiately sports, yeah. but also music. Um, those two areas have had been infiltrated earlier. I mean, Jackie Robinson. It's not an accident that that came way before Martin Luther King. Right. That that the the business uh, reasons for that were strong enough, and the society was more uh, willing to absorb in that region. Uh, and of course, that's a huge, that's a huge factor. And then, of course, you see it in jazz too. Jazz was integrating way, way ahead mm-hmm. of other, of other media. There's something to be said that both of those mediums had a little bit of um, meritocracy involved. I mean, of if, you, if you can bat three fifty, same kind of meritocracy, right? really. You can do it or you can't do right. it. Right. And if you can, you're valuable, and that's then people right. will start to overlook differences, right? But when you think about it, in the '30s. Uh, there were a few integrated bands. Hmm. Well, Benny Goodman did early on, right? Oh, well, yeah. yeah. And and informally, jam session-wise, blacks and whites were playing together at an amazingly early time. Right. And, and of course, in sports, it took it was harder, but uh, I think sports probably was the biggest influential force in, in attitude. When you just saw, you know, on a TV or a film that these guys are doing something together, right, and that somehow it's effective successfully, yeah, right, yeah. Um, Jackie Robinson, my mother was so excited about that. I remember yeah. that. that was like uh, the hottest thing in, in her world. What kind of person do you have to be to be that guy to take that abuse? To just know you're going to take the abuse. How smart do you have to be to figure out that you would better get the right person to? Because mm-hmm. the way that they organized that was a brilliant. Uh, yeah, yeah. Again, another great Ken Burns film. Yeah, I was just just watching that like yeah. two weeks ago. I don't know. The, Ken Burns is, has contributed an unbelievable amount to these kinds of social. The one about the New York Five, which is one of the most I haven't seen overwhelming piece of work of his. With uh, the Trump and the, the Wild. Trump, and Trump gets in there. I can't. Even. What a film! It's it's a blockbuster. They, I have to. I'll have to check it out. It's it's on powerful, Netflix or something. Powerful Probably. subject. God Almighty! It's a pretty recent film. Yeah. So Burns and his sister did it. 
great amount of incredible they got to the ugly one that they could get to. I have to see that. But what a what a civil rights document that is. Whoa. And you know, the date on that is not too long. Mid eighties, right? Yeah. Late eighties? I was I remember being in high school and that was it's a it's it's a red red I was in Virginia Beach when I had the whole Tawana Brawley thing with um, Yeah. Um, what's his name? The New York Five brought out unmasked the New York hierarchy in just in of, of racism and yeah. privilege. Yeah. I read a book called yeah. Savage City about New York in the sixties and the black power movement and the yeah. NYPD basically being a an armed wing of the white power movement. It just, it was that overt. I had no idea as like yeah. growing up in the seventies. Well, was... the, the, this film recreates a lot of that ambiance. It's really amazing to see. I feel uh, it happening now though. Yeah, the, the country just... is like, it's, well, we may be thrown into something really serious here. I think so too. Uh, I don't think it's a joke at all. I think really like... serious. Uh, the Trump's appearance in that film is a, is a stunner. He's terrifying. He, he pops up in there and you think, oh my God. And then, of course, he's the one. Well, he still has no... He he wants them all executed. Still. Huh? Still. He has no... You know, they've been exonerated, Totally right? exonerated. DNA you couldn't, exonerated. You couldn't them. have it cleaner than... Right. The, you know, and he doesn't... He still wants them to fry. Beautiful. That's beautiful thinking. Wow. Anyway, yeah. Well, let's take, let me, let's uh, take we, a break and let me change... Uh, yeah, okay. We had a great meeting with... Um, on the plane down, I had to come up... Uh, actually, my dad died while we were in Mississippi, and my sister and I came back um, for the funeral, and then we went back to Mississippi, uh, and we rode back on a plane, a very strange uh, trip because the lost pressure, and we had we drew we rode almost the whole flight in a big, great big plane at about two thousand feet, um, but we were sitting with Bayard Rustin, who was the great organizer of the March on Washington, one of the Martin, Martin King's top friends. Incredible man, actually. Um, and we wanted to talk to him about the, the movement and about what he he and the guys were doing, talking to each other about it in Tougaloo and so forth. But he turned out to be a big Bach fancier. So he wanted to know. <laughs> You'd rather talk about Bach? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> He was a very cultured man. He actually had been deep-sixed publicly by the movement because he was gay and because uh, Hoover had all the goods on him. Mm -hmm. So as great an intellectual driver of the whole thing he was, he had to be out of the, out of the newsreel shots, mm -hmm. etc. Very great man, actually. So, um, and, so, and King, of course, was very aware of what Hoover had. Hoover was trying to get a book on all those guys, sure. um, and so. But Rustin, it was interesting. He he just wanted. He just he had just heard the Matthew Passion or something. And uh -huh. His he he just was so. He was like uh, a color-free intellectual, sort of the way that a lot of black intellectuals already were, uh -huh. and, you know, in that period, in that era. Um, Amazing man, but but that we were thrilled because you know we'd seen him walk in and out with all these big shots and and uh, to get us actually a very tense kind of three hours with him. Mm -hmm. um, but the flight actually, we they, I was surprised they didn't take us down into one of the airports. We small airport or something, right? And, but they didn't want well, like a, like a seven thirty seven at two thousand feet or something. Mm -hmm. Long time. Oh, God. 
Let me uh, change batteries because so, uh, we've been an hour twelve, and I don't want to. The the air, the air felt pretty pretty thin when you, when, when you are not uh, pressurizing it. <laughs> Even at two thousand. Yeah, it got harder for people like that. I think because the what got harder? The progress in the progress in in that area became more incremental. Not as radical as one could see after those two summers, really one summer and a follow-up. Um, and this one guy, the guy who led us down there, he his next job was as uh, shows where where you go if you're a radical who wants to keep it going through the '60s. Next job was a meat inspector for John Lindsay in New York. And Another high-risk job, huh? Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, that's like serious criminal money involved in that stuff, right? Yeah. I yeah. mean, take as much physical courage. This guy with immense physical courage. He's like a, he was a wrestling champion like in high school and college yeah. and just, and a, and a, uh, rode a really hot motorcycle out of, off which he fell a couple of times in Berlin. But so, and he'd been really chased. He, as the leader of, of a group in Mississippi, he'd been chased down country roads down there I remember he bought himself the fastest car of that era, the GTO Plymouth, mm. just uh, to get out of just Dodge. to get just to get uh, get away. Wow. Um, so, but then he said, being the meat inspector for the city of New York it was just as dangerous. Damn. Really? Yeah. Well, because Lindsay, bless his heart, I mean, decided to do something about something that had been like a, a hotbed of yeah. you know, really scary stuff for years. But um, talk about being having to have a target target on your back. Oh. Going from from the south to to a mafia uh, target. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I think I think the compensation was that he was a guy who probably at that age was kind of danger. Uh, uh, Liked it a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Some people have that a gene. Bit of a junkie. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Whether you want to like jump out of planes or sure. Well, I know people well, like that. Too. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, if you're a skydiver or a cliff jumper, you're <laughs> you're That's surviving. a real adrenaline thing. Now, yeah. that's a little different because there isn't much of a good cause associated with that. Right. It's um, just your own. Yeah, I think I think for John, he needed both. Hmm. Uh, to sort of fight for something. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Take the risk, but if you know what it's what it's really about. I've got these broad shoulders. I'm going to like and put these out there. Absolutely. And see, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um. So let's go back to. To music a little bit. When when you so you you, you went you went to print. Did you go to Princeton? Is yeah, that, yeah, I did. And then Harvard. Yeah, is that right? Or other other way around. Harvard. Harvard and then Princeton. Yeah, Princeton was. Um, I went down to uh, study with Sessions, who I would say wasn't exactly teaching by mm -hmm. then, but I I had shown him music when I was in high school. Uh, I knew his son. I played tennis with his son and. Um, so he, he and he'd made a few remarks that were useful at that time. His teaching was very large, large design, structural stuff. No detail. Mm. Detail didn't interest him to teach. Um, detail uh, was it completely broke him and Babbitt to whatever degree anybody mm -hmm. was interested in that. Um, and uh, did a lot of conducting of new pieces. Uh, were you playing a lot 
playing, viol- playing viola quite a lot. Viola, I yeah. see, at this point. Right, yeah. so you switched in. I never tried playing concert piano uh, at all until we started, Rosie and I started a chamber festival. And she plays fiddle? Yeah, right? and then I, then I started to try. That was a that was the load because I didn't have, I had no from notes uh, habits at all and a no t- no real you sort of create your technique yeah <laughs> yeah try to discipline it such that you could actually yeah yeah that was, that was a load. the discipline of classical playing is it, I find that fascinating actually whole other thing the discipline of yeah doing it it's like tai chi in a way it's like uh, absolutely the discipline is the discipline. Absolutely, and just finding projects that I could actually do was, but it, it made sense because I wanted to be able to play in the festival. I played up the old and some of the ensemble stuff, mm-hmm. uh, the Bach concertos that we did. Uh, mm-hmm. um, but um, and when you graduate, what, where, what happens next? I mean, how do you become? How do you make that switch from student to professional? Well, I did a couple things. Um, I was really lucky. I got a fellowship out of graduate school. I was not in a very clear composing period at all. So what I did was really a lot of performing. Um, We started a series of new music concerts in Club 47, which is the old John and Joan Baez folk club. We knew Jim Rooney. Somehow we got to know him. He's this folk uh, sort of producer guy who has had quite a career producing country stuff from year one. And he had this notion that he would uh, make a lot of money with uh, some of his acts and support a new music series. So we supplied the concerts. We were we got some of our friends and we produced our we put together a string quartet. We performed string quartets and some of our pianist friends played. We did that for about three or four years and and were kind of concert producers and players mm-hmm. and. Since I was not too sure composing what I was really trying to do at the time, um, we did play my quartet number zero with our quartet. But, um, it was a good thing to be able to be doing more performance-related mm-hmm. things. And you kind of me. had like a, a house band sort of ready to yeah, play. Yeah, this was called the Club 47 Ensemble. Right. And, and we we just really generated it. Well, Jim paid us, actually, which was amazing. Yeah. Um, just... Met, caught up with him this year. He's had an amazing life producing for all kinds of uh, country people for years and playing guitar in Nashville. But um, then after that, uh, I I got during the in the course of that, I got offered a couple of university jobs, which I turned down because I felt I needed to be kind of figuring stuff out for a while. Then when I needed a job, I couldn't get anything. Mm-hmm. And right at the last minute, I got a year replacement at Reed College at Portland, Oregon. So we took off. And How old are you at this point? Uh, about 26 or so. Um, and Portland, I suddenly got a phone call from uh, Klaus Liebmann at MIT which was a very European-style arts division. They had a head of this, a head of architecture, a head of music. He was head of music, the first and only last head of music. Sort of like uh, he had studied with Hindemith, and that's the way European institutions work. So he had heard a piece of mine 
which uh, I had written in during that fellowship time. Actually, we'd spend a half a year in Italy, and I wrote this piece called Confinement, and I, it, this is incredible. What was it for? Large chamber ensemble, no performance possibilities. I sent it in to Arthur Weisberg's group for contemporary music, whose call for scores. I heard later that he had about 100 scores, and that I think it was Gil Kalish, it might have been some other player, uh, who walked through the office and I was in the out pile. Maybe it was Bob Miller. I can't remember. One of these guys who had played a little bit of my music out of, out of practically maybe in college or graduate school. And they said, no, this, Arthur, take another look at this. So Arthur pro programmed that piece and then he recorded it. Klaus Liebmann heard it and he offered me a job at MIT. Now, Later on at MIT, that seemed to me like fantastic because searches in university now have become, right. as you know, they're like mega volt, yeah. hard working. Yeah. You get 200 and you damn well account for everything. Yeah. Now, he, in those days, head of music just calls up Invites. and offers me a job. Yeah. It's felt weird many times when I've been on part of one of these searches and we're going through this, you know, yeah. swimming through. So I thought, that sounds great. I'll come. Um, to MIT, and I didn't know was much. Was that the, after doing the year, or even prior to doing? I, after the year in Portland, yeah. And at Portland, I taught very educationally. There was a regular teacher was still there, Dave Chaikin, and we got a whole bunch of people showed up for a beginning harmony, hmm. about forty kids. We said, "Well, we'll give them an entrance exam, and you take the one." I said to him, "That are qualified, and I'll take the ones who are unqualified." And at the end, we'll see whether there's any difference. And which I guessed there might not be. At the end of the term, exactly, the classes were equivalent in ability. Really? All that was uh, showing up on the entrance exam was uh, background, yep. exposure. Experience. Home. Yeah. yeah. Where they'd grown up with hearing sounds. And classes were exactly the same. I mean, some good ones, some not good ones could have been toss-up. That interested me a lot, because from then on, I'd never bothered much with the entrance exams. You know, if somebody wanted to take it, they should take it, and they often turned out Let's fine. See what, yeah. what the result is at the end yeah. of that, yeah. So, um, yeah, I came back to MIT, and I taught, at that time, very hard schedule. Uh, there was, you, you taught three courses a term, all of them new to me, yeah. and I also class got a, classes, not like individual lessons or anything, but like class, like class. Class, but with a lot of correcting, because you know mm -hmm. you're starting with the writing courses, right? So that was hard work. And then I also had a job coming back as conductor of this group in town, which had just started up a few years ago, called the Cantata Singers. And I got that job because, as while I was on that fellowship, I had done a lot of new music conducting for Brandeis University. And in the ensemble at Brandeis University was a guy named Eugene Lehner, who had been the violist of the Kolisch Quartet, and was a very great musician, who taught at NEC. And they, for some reason, asked him for recommendations about a conductor. And all he'd ever done with me out there was Arthur Berger, Seymour Schifrin. New uh, stuff. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But he recommended me to conduct this. Oh, I also had a recording. As a graduate student, 
I put together a concert of two, uh, three Bach cantatas, which was my had been my big interest all through college and stuff. I'd done a couple of cantatas with Bach Society in college, um, and I had a pretty good recording of uh, professional players, the high school choir singing the choruses. Um, I had been in the high school choir in Princeton, so the conductor just sort of donated that choir for that, those mm -hmm. concerts. And that recording, plus all that Berger and Schifrin, I got this cantata singer shot. Mm -hmm. So I was pretty, I was 29 years old, and I certainly no, knew nobody in town. Right. Um, Killing it for 29, though. I mean, and I had a whole other idea about how Bach should sound, I think, from what people were hearing. It wasn't a historical idea at all. But mm -hmm. uh, And so for about three years, I did that choir, and the choir did, we really did well. Let's talk about developed a strong audience. That was the beginning of like the last fifty years of Bach conducting. What's the difference in how you hear it versus how, say, three hundred years of performance practice hears it? I heard the pieces in terms of extreme individuality, piece to piece, high engagement with with the with the words and high degree of study of how the structure of the music works rather than a performance practice. The performance practice thing was just starting to rev up mm -hmm. at that time. And what happened, I did these years of the cantata singers, a guy named Craig Smith, this is very much part of, part of my story, eventually my closest musical friend, he was... Um, a guy who turned out to live across the street from me, but I never knew him. But somebody said, meet this guy across the street. He knows all the Schubert songs. He spent a year after school studying every Schubert song. I thought that sounds really interesting. It's like, what, 200 of those or 300? <laughs> More than that, 500. And I eventually discovered he really did it. I mean, he actually like had really done, yeah, actually done that. Yeah, And so... He started coming to our concerts. He was a, a singer as well as a pianist. He decided to be a kind of what they now call a collaborative pianist. Um, he heard his first Bach cantatas over cantata singers, and he was a singer in the choir at Emmanuel Church, which was just an ordinary church choir. I did a little anthem and, you know, paid a salary, a little professional choir. It was a tenor. His conductor keels over drunk in the middle of a rehearsal. Craig is 20 years old at the time. He's like a graduate student at NEC. Mm -hmm. And the rector comes in and says, oh my God, we've got to do something here. Um, who, can anybody conduct? Craig says, sure, I'll conduct. Craig's never conducted anything. So he conducts that service, conducts the next service. Um, the rector says, you know, can you stay through the year? He says, sure. About the fourth Sunday, he says to the rector, very interesting man actually himself, we could do Bacchantatas here. I could get my friends from the conservatory. They'd all come in. They'd do it for nothing for a while. Mm -hmm. This starts the series, which is now going to celebrate its 50th wow. year of continuous Bach and Tyler uh, 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 next two years from now. <laughs> Craig died a few years ago. Big loss for me, for sure. But he ran that incredible series, and he also became associated with a lot of other stuff with the director Peter Sellers and, and with Mark Morris and so forth and they all worked here at Emmanuel Church and I was I've been the so-called uh, principal guest conductor for the whole time right. um, and what began really was that from that sort of Bach connection was this sort of ongoing 
community of musicians who who really formed around this idea of Bach, which was Bach from the piece rather than in, from stylistic considerations. Yes. Which put us for a while, interestingly and quite uh, uh, with quite di great difficulty in kind of a odd relationship with the historical performance movement, which was here and in Amsterdam probably the strongest it was mm -hmm. anywhere in the world. We had we had a real community of historical performance hardliners who would come in and sub at Emmanuel and so forth, and they were at odds with everything we were doing. We were arguing. This was all useful in the end. At the time, it was extremely difficult because there were people really saying unkind things to each other all the time. But we we kind of steered Emmanuel through that whole period, uh, playing uh, playing modern instruments and playing, making our decisions on a different basis. Eventually, there's been kind of what you would call a great joining of hands mm -hmm. between these two communities who have begun to feel like we came out more or less at the same place because there are so many of these historic performance people who are very, very good heads, you know, really sharp people. Um, some like this, well, you know, a typical New York example would be people like this Johnny Gandelsman, you know, mm -hmm. the, and Brooklyn Rider who are all, they're all into perf historic performance but they're even more into some sort of structural very composer first kind of thinking. Mm. Um, that's kind of where where Emmanuel winds up. Um, but in the meantime, that community grew kind of together as a kind of a hippie enclave, eventually becoming salaried, and eventually producing people who go out into the world like Sanford Sylvan and Lorraine Hunt Leverson, you know, unbelievably talented people mm -hmm. who learned music literally from the beginning in that in that very spa space um, and we get an awful lot of funneling from the conservatories and so forth into the the young younger cohort at, at Emmanuel music so it's been a big fa fact which starts really right then at that very first time when I showed up here with the cantata singers after three years I in a way felt more connected to Emmanuel because of it being in the service and because working with the rector was part of being able to learn about the cantatas. They're a funny form of music where if you don't do the work about the um, the way they were intended, you can't get the right uh, performance. Hmm. It can be just kind of a slog and kind of a mess. and just You don't know how specific they are to the, to the day for which they're right. written. Because uh, the readings for the day are always what Bach's working mm -hmm. working with, and of course nowadays all the real, really persuasive performers of this music know this. I mean, this guy Suzuki, the guy who's done this pheno phenomenal Japanese series, is totally <clears throat> versed in that. I mean, and teaches the music that way. Mm -hmm. um, it makes it a kind of a surprising world to enter for a college performer or somebody like that, like we do at a Tanglewood. We've done them every year for, we've done considerable amount of Bach for 12 years now. And they're surprised at the kind of stuff they're studying, but they see the, they see the point eventually. Mm -hmm. Oh, yes. For, you know, for me, <coughs> it's a, a little bit of a, of a simplistic way of putting it, but 
for me, real art happens when the you have a, an intersection of the purity of your intent and the sort of perfection of your craft. Uh, and for me, Bach sits like right in the middle of that. Like oh, yeah, his, for sure. His, his intent is so pure, but his craft is so interesting and and. I don't want to say perfect, but in its own little world, it, it, it's just him and Brahms for me hit in the same sort of spot. Yeah, they're they're at some. You're right. They're at some level. It's well, Bach is kind of an unlimited Agreed. perspective. I mean, there's things that he tries say once in a piece, and you think he boy, wonder why well, why wouldn't he bring that back? And then if you stay with him for decades, you never see it again. He's that confident. There's so much in, music. In the, there's in, so much there's music. the unbelievable flexibility of what he's doing. That he, you know, there's so it's it is it's it's limitless. And of course, he believed it was part uh, that it, that it was the it was world physics. One of the reasons he's so confident, I think, is he thinks that the structure of music is limited is the structure of the universe. Bach does. Yeah. Um, and we may disagree with him now based on what science is worrying about and so forth but that does manifest itself in the way he he composes and builds structures etc yeah, yeah. It's just, well since we're on, on that subject let's talk about how you write um, what your process of, of writing is do you do you have a set time every day that you write no I'm co I'm completely um, random but um, I tend to uh, I tend to want to try to keep the um, the way into and out of a piece as as open as possible, and um, so the set time has never worked for me too well. Mm -hmm. uh, but I do find that uh, one of the things I was very conscious of from having been a, like from the very earliest a, a kind of a box student was the idea that you want to keep your um, your base of possibility as wide as possible, so that you're you're not uh, in a position of rejecting things um, as they come. Yeah, or you think something might have a possibility even if it seems uh, unlikely. Um, so that's and that, I feel that's a lot of uh, of Bach. The range of what he attempts is to just leave those has to do with opening the possibility of. of of being very, very direct, but all, but if necessary, almost un, impossibly uh, 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 eccentric and sort of unusual. like being in the moment, but having to write that down too. Like. Yeah, and of course, then he works a lot on on craft, uh, on being able to solve problems. Well, so, um, for you, do you say do you being a layperson as a composer? I don't. I don't compose really, but do you start with an idea of like the structure that you have? Or? Sometimes, sometimes I like a really a, uh, a problem that I don't see the solution for, um, or I find myself working with a continuity that I don't see the fitting on. Mm -hmm. This, this I think, uh, it's, it's completely inefficient, but I, but it's some it's a way that I seem to want to have to be functioning. It's kind of it's, it's all. Uh, this is always an interesting part of, of talking to composers for me because the, the the 
act of sitting down and writing is has such an intense discipline to it that to to get the ideas flowing it is almost a, a great mystery to me. So, someone like Joan Tower just starts writing. She said she just basically like writes like a like a book, like she's got a character or something, and she's going to see where it goes. Mm-hmm. Stucky told me he basically has the entire structure, and then he sat down to 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 fill the structure. So what sounds like from what you're saying, you're somewhere like in the middle of not necessarily in the middle, but maybe more structured, but not so. You don't really have the the answers yet. You like you you make a yeah. question for yourself. Well, I've had every. Uh, I've now discovered I can't rule anything out. Mm-hmm. Like, I've I've definitely written pieces where I've set myself a very definite trajectory that I was going to follow, and then I've had other cases where I had no idea where we where it was going or whether mm-hmm. whether I would even want to keep it. Uh, um, but I, the main thing that I, I feel is, is essential for me is to, is to not, um, t- not decide against anything, mm-hmm. you know, uh, it's, the more I've been at it, the less I accept eventually. Well, less you accept. <laughs> yeah, because, well, because, you know, you don't, I don't want to re- re- redo things. So, um, because now I've got a lot of pieces that are, that are already there, mm-hmm. I find them creeping back, and I, that's not an interesting place for me to go. Uh, and the more pieces I write, the, in a way, I feel like I'm, I'm, reducing, I'm reducing my territory all the time. But that's, but that's all right. I mean, Sort of reducing your, the broadness of your footprint? Well, because or? I don't want to repeat. Right. You know? um, and, uh, but I think that... The result seems to be that at least the, what I'm able to come up with now is not is not another another version of something, mm-hmm. um, and and I guess that's what's interesting to me about it. Uh, but I I have sometimes really found I benefited from having a very sometimes almost annoyingly exact idea of what the pieces wants mm-hmm. is going to be, and I'm never happy with that. But certainly I've, I've followed it out sometimes. Yeah. Maybe that's what the universe is yeah. giving you. I don't. Yeah, um, um, I enjoy some of the those pieces at the end of the Art of the Fugue, which are unbelievably impossible problems. Mm-hmm. Every once in a while, I've enjoyed trying to set one of those kind of situations up to just figure out the issues and try to solve the problems. Well, yeah, like when everything and... is going to go backwards, or you know, things are going to go at different speeds mm-hmm. at the same time. And mm-hmm. I wrote a piece once where I wanted. To reproduce the experience that I'd had in geometry class of these trains going at different speeds and finding out when are they going to intersect them, <laughs> and I wrote a big, big finale to this piece of mine, the Partita, and it was, it was so speculative and such a weird uh, craft, almost having nothing to do with anything but kind of um, uh, figuring out long range where two harmonies are going to be. Uh, at a part of the piece that I was nowhere near. Right. Um, but I enjoyed it, mm-hmm. and, and I enjoyed the result. Uh, but it was one of those structures which, when I started, I thought, this is just going to be a total workhorse project. You know. Other times, I'm really happy when I can get something easily. Mm-hmm. I think, for me, I always have this feeling that, in terms of being paid to write a piece, everything evens out. The hard ones and the difficult ones will... Uh, will all be almost cut down the middle after 
a 10-year span. How, what, how do you mean? That is some pieces that I get really easily that I almost think like I'm taking the money. You know? I shouldn't even be paid. <laughs> and others that I work third, triple time, for, quadruple time for. Right. Um, and uh, it's almost like it, it bears no relationship to the specific outline of the project. Right. One of the things that I... That I um, try to talk about a lot in these interviews is I try to try to speak to like people who are starting out their career like what mm -hmm. are you going to do <laughs> and one of the things that everyone has to deal with is actual failure mm -hmm. so do, if you wouldn't mind do you recall like a, a, a real moment of like I really fucked this up or I this is a failure and how did you deal with that with yourself well, you know, things can feel like failures that are your responsibility. There are also failures of circumstance, right. which all composers experience. And there, there are failures of ambition, that is, of, the, of a piece for which you, uh, in, say, a medium, they wish to function a lot, but in which either the public or the profession doesn't seem to want to encourage you to go on, go forward. So in terms of, say, a piece I've written that, that just didn't come out, those are uh, usually I've managed to, to recall them and put them away. Like, um, like recall them and say that they, they're, that doesn't exist anymore. Repossess as, them. As my Uber. Yeah, yeah, which yeah. Is the, which is the Brahms method, you know. Um, I withdraw this, basically, yeah. yeah. And I've, I've successfully done that in quite a few cases. A huh. big piece for brass quintet that I managed to... It just completely like, didn't, yeah. didn't float in terms of. Has good music in it. It's it's way more tiring than the effort required. Mm -hmm. I think that if you cross that equation of just stressing out the performers, the content has to be very high mm -hmm. to ask that. That's a piece where I thought no. Uh, I got protests back about it a couple times. I thought they're right, and I managed to just get. Get, so it, get it off the market. You, sometimes you deal with with what you consider a failure by almost erasing it. Yeah, well, and I, you know, I feel like it, sometimes I've asked the performers to do very hard things, but I've been pretty confident that, from my standpoint, that that's what what needs to happen, and that it's satisfying in the context right. of musically what what right. has to happen. But there have been cases where I felt like, oh, okay, I really see that just, you know, I it's too gnarly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What about something that just musically didn't work for you? Uh, not necessarily a, a piece, but or the title of the piece or anything. But how do you ever have? Have you ever in your life had to just like sit down with yourself and reset and say, "I'm I'm 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 in the wrong. I'm going in the wrong direction right now, and I need to." Oh yeah. Well, well, again, kind of that very same piece was the, was the fulfillment of a rather specific commission from your from Eastman School, which had a very specific purpose. So not only was the piece way over stressful for the players. It wasn't good for the occasion. Mm. So I wrote another piece. Ah, so not only like a... a, a I just started over. Replace and Completely renew. different premise. And was that a successful piece? For its, for its role. Mm -hmm. It wasn't an ambitious piece, but it was very successful for its role. Right. Um, and sometimes one of the things that my students at Tango are always shocked for me to suggest to them that they should learn to do all kinds of pieces. Such as, somebody asks you to do something which you think is just not your thing, do it. 
maybe it will make you better. Yeah, we've asked them very often to write things for theater score, and the director wants a little squib, and you know, and it should be in such and such a situation, and somebody will come and say, I don't do that. You know, I am a composer. Mm -hmm. No, we usually say, yeah, no, do it. Find out something. Because you are asked to do all kinds of things. I mean, uh, I wrote a really pretty bad piece for commission for 100 tubas. Um, <laughs> I be, can't dream of a brilliant piece for 100 I tubas. Did, I cut it down to 10 actual voices, but there were 100 players. <laughs> and it was the nation's capital, uh, outdoors on the steps of the capital, and it was to include the Maryland State Song. Now that's that's already yeah. a lot of tubas when outside. You, when you add on the the restrictors, the the piece gets harder to write, right. and the likelihood of a bad piece becomes greater, <laughs> and that's what happened here. Yeah. Um, um, I wrote a piece called uh, "Deep Potomac Bells," which mercifully has never been played again. Do you withdraw well, that? Well, no, it was it played. It was played, it was played in Tokyo. Um, I don't have to withdraw it. It withdraws itself. <laughs> um, the market has spoken. Yeah, but I mean, often the case. Uh, sometimes when the when the when the specificity of the of the commission is very great, I find that very stimulating. Something very good happens, but it always adds a, a certain suspense to the mm -hmm. to the project. Mm -hmm. You know. Let's talk a little bit about writing for a piece that's going to sort of, I think, have a once-in-a-lifetime performance on this next on this concert on the 25th, which is this piece, Bag of Tales, that you wrote for seven different pianists in seven right. movements. And uh, so from Molly's story, it's just like the, the music appeared in her mailbox one day. What? Yeah, I, um, I was in one of those periods where... Um, I, w I wasn't progressing on a fairly large project, and I had sort of accumulated very recently some very short pieces that couldn't be longer, mm -hmm. and that absolutely shouldn't be longer. Mm -hmm. One of the things I think I've become always better at recognizing is how long an idea should go. If, if this is, Copeland talks very interestingly about that once when he writes his uh, piano fantasy. He says, I knew I had an idea that had to go a half hour. <laughs> he said, early in his life, he wouldn't have been able to tell. Interesting. Um, and that's, I had a bunch of pieces which are short. And they seemed to be associated in my head with with pianists that I knew. And um, so I've, I sent them into Shermer, I, uh, saying, uh, look, nobody asked me for these, but I think they're, I think it's a set, and I think that they could be played as a set or separately, but, um, and I know that there's no contract for them to produce it, since I write still longhand and on paper. So to my surprise, David Featherolf, who is a good friend of mine as well as the, in the production department, he produced, he had a moment where there wasn't much happening. Mm -hmm. So it took him probably a day or two, and he produced the set and sent it, sent it out to me. I thought, so then the thing to do is, since I knew who the pieces, they were sort of portraits, but not exactly, mm -hmm. but they were certainly... So you didn't set out to write portraits, it's just they revealed themselves to you as a set, but you they, had been thinking of them? Yeah, I had been thinking people. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and, and the, and the ironically, sort of piano music is sort of like the smallest part of my catalog, really. I, partly because I'm just not a pianist. Right. I mean, I'm a, I'm a jazzer and not a concert player. You so find I, that a 
difficult medium to write for? A yeah. Solo piano? Yeah. Because I don't have a feel for what a real pianist does. Stephen Stuckey said the same um, thing about his piano sonata. He's like, I mm -hmm. hope it plays yeah. like a piano because I don't know what yeah. I'm doing. I think Rouse did really well with his piano concerto. Uh, that's to me the the kind of music a, a non-pianist should write. It, it, it sounds completely like the, the writing of a non-pianist mm. in, in a kind of interesting way. Mm. I've never been able to quite nail that down. So I've written the, like the two big sonatas, um, mm. and I've written otherwise short pieces, um, which, is, which are sort of what I can get a, a grip on. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and then Ryan played the set. Um, Ryan McCullough. Uh, up at Cornell, mm -hmm. and I have his recording, and I like the set as a, a sequence. I like I like that performance a lot. Um, so that vindicated to me that they could be that. And then Molly had this. Molly is, as you know, she's a force, mm -hmm. just a force in the in the community. Um, in addition to being a phenomenal player, yeah. I mean, she's she's someone that changes the world around her. Yeah, um, you know, I've, I've known <clears> her. Sort of since '98, but we started to play. When I arrived in the city, I I, I, I played again with her. I was like, "Oh, I know you." Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, she's from the south, like I am. We have a Indeed. similar kind of go get it kind of energy. And when this, you know, this was like sort of like, "Hey, I wonder if we could actually get this done." And then, lo and behold, everyone could show up on January 25th in in Brooklyn. It's kind so of like a amazing. miracle. And some of the pianists know each other. Some of them don't. Yeah. Um, which is interesting, um, and yeah, Molly. I knew her as a Tanglewood fellow, and mm -hmm. she had that spark. You know, mm -hmm. we I, I've been there so many years, off and on. That you notice people like that right, right away. Um, uh, but really, Gil would be the, of course the one I go. I think he's involved in this Weisberg original Weisberg, uh, even the choosing of the piece. He plays on that recording. Hmm. Uh, that's 1965. Um, and then, yeah, and then he coached and coached my piano quintet at Tango in '84 with Judy Gordon as the young oh. player. So it's like it's all very kind of interwoven. Yeah, oddly enough, Judy was at my wedding, and I like I just she wow. knows my wife from Baltimore oh, from way back, and I'm I just like all of these Rachel Sokolow who. Ed Shermer is like also was at my wedding and my wife knew her from so it's wow. like, for me it's like on the other end all of these kind this of is, yeah this is amazing are, amazing numbers of connections yeah um, Bob Levin I conducted his undergraduate thesis concert uh, Rosie played the violin his completion of Mozart's concerto for violin piano and orchestra mm. he also played uh, Mozart 503 and I conducted that um, so that's way back yeah the, um but I some, give some props to Kayla again because when I, when I heard his Ives Second Sonata in like in college, I think I just completely blew my my mind wide open. I just well, of course, I knew him in, as the partner of Jan de Gaetani, mm -hmm. because I wrote a big piece for Jan, uh, for Weisberg's ensemble, right coming right off of this confinement thing, um, LJX songs. <clears throat> so he was and he was, you know, performing with Jan for fifteen years. She's yeah. Um, so, yeah, it connects a lot of strands, I must say. The Particularly because, you know, I just, for reasons which have always been clear to me, I haven't written much for piano. Mm -hmm. um, even a piece for violin piano, I have two violin piano sonatas. The piano part, the violin part never seemed like I, I had to think about 
even sideways, but the piano part, uh, it's all, I just don't feel the instrument physically the way a real pianist mm -hmm. does. If you're not just making it up as you go along, I don't There's know. There's so much specific play. things to the technique of playing that instrument, even just getting around it. Sonically, when I started playing concert music, I really had to take some very severe uh, comments <clears throat> on like the sound. What? Just on the quality of your tone. Well, I wanted the tone to just sound like Duke Ellington, mm -hmm. you know, which is the very oh, unusual piano sound. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But uh, that's not going to do it. You know, that's not. That's not. That's very few situations in the concert music world where that, mm -hmm. where is that going to serve. Um, so you have a very particular group of people who love that and are going to listen to you do it every there time. You go. You do but, it every but there you go. But the chances are that's not going to happen. <laughs> so no, really, that, and the other, you know, all these other pianists, I'd say the one most recent in my life is Ryan, but of course Ryan plays both of my sonatas and plays, he plays the... Uh, Gloria got me back to piano writing, really, with the idea of the Leonard Stein piece. Mm -hmm. Leonard was a very close friend of Rosie and I, uh, starting in L.A. We met him on his 70th birthday, and then because of the Schoenberg connection, because we were, both of us, very deep into Schoenberg, we got to know Leonard. He was at our festival many times, um, performing there. Um, so that was a, that was one of those request for a piece which was a golden request. Mm -hmm. I mean, <clears throat> just felt like that's exactly, when she said that, that's exactly what I want to be doing. I'm um, very much, yeah. I, the the fact that, that we, we, we're going to have you and we're going to have all seven players and hopefully a bunch of people to enjoy it, um, I, uh, I think is, for me, being a young, you know, I've only been doing this for a year and having the opportunity to be a part of this kind of event is exactly why I got into this side of it in the first place. So uh, I'm going to go ahead and conclude our our interview on, on that subject, and I'm looking forward uh, to seeing you again in a couple of weeks, and I really appreciate you taking the time to, to talk to me today. My pleasure. Yeah. It's really, really great. Thank you. <clears throat>